You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We had reached the conclusion of the first chapter in the earlier tape, but we want to put a proper period to that whole discussion. And uh, perhaps we can do that in commenting on one of the lines that turn up here. It's on the lips of Jesus himself, spoken to Nathaniel and to the group around him. You will see greater things than that. You will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, that's a reference, an Old Testament reference that we ought to track down. It's Jacob's dream that's recounted in Genesis 28:12. Leaving Beersheba, Jacob set out for Haran, reaching a certain sanctuary. He spent the night there, for the sun had set. He took one of the stones of the sanctuary, and using it for a pillow, he lay down in that sanctuary. He had a dream in which he saw a ladder set up on the earth with its top reaching the sky, and angels of God were ascending and descending on it. All right, that's the backdrop against which this remark is made by Jesus to Nathaniel and the group. You will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, not on the ladder, but on the Son of Man. Now, the imagery of ladder, I think, is of really high significance and it's this when you just think about it. What does a ladder do but give us access to a higher level? If there's an attic and there's no stairway leading up to it, it's the ladder that makes the attic accessible to you. Jesus views himself in that way. See, that you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, not on a ladder. Implying then, in this picturesque way, that Jesus is our means of access to God and to heaven, just as a ladder is the only possibility you have of reaching the attic. Okay, so it's on that note then that the first chapter ends, and we're pitched forward now to action, whereas all along now it's been discourse. So what we find at the very top of the next chapter is the account of the wedding feast at Cana which runs as follows. Two days later, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was present. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. The wine gave out, and Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Jesus said to her, What is that to you and to me? It is not yet time for me to act. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the ceremonial purification practiced by the Jews, each large enough to hold twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill these jars with water. So they filled them full. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they did so. When the master of the feast tasted the water which had now turned into wine, 
without knowing where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone else serves his good wine first, and the poorer wine after people have drunk deeply. But you have kept back your good wine till now. This the first of the signs of his mission Jesus showed at Cana in Galilee. By it he showed his greatness, and his disciples believed in him. First of all, I'll make an overall comment on this account that we've just read this episode. It is the climax of what has gone before. See, where there was a real press forward to something visible. Remember the last thing virtually that we heard in the first chapter was, you will see greater things than that. And now we're beginning to see one of those greater things, a visible manifestation of the Messiah. Now it's not just going to be concluding that this is the Messiah from what he is saying. Now it's what he is doing that will enlighten us as to his identity. I might say this, that in that world and in that culture, this was the more powerful, more effective way to identify someone by his deeds rather than his words. They would prefer to draw their conclusion about who this individual is by seeing him at work. I had strangeness of approach, perhaps from our point of view, but maybe not quite so strange. When you think of how many of our surnames in the various European strains are based on that same theory. So, you know, here's a man called Metzger because his original ancestor going back in time was a butcher and somebody else is called Baker because his ancestor earned his living in that fashion and on and on. But that's the point here, though, that we're going to see things happen that will open our minds as to who Jesus really is. Well, that's one thing to note. The other is that this is, we're right here at the starting point of this whole self-disclosure of Jesus through the actions that he will perform through the signs. You see, the very fact that it says, as it does here, this, the first of Jesus' signs he performed at Cana in Galilee. Well, if this is the first, that implies that there's a second, third, and so on. And indeed there are. It's all going to lead up, as we'll see, to the resurrection, which then, of course, is the sign above all other signs that makes the point of Jesus' identity and of his role and meaning. Well, to take this bit by bit, the opening, on the third day, two days later, on the third day, is this the third day after the baptismal scene? Is it the third day after the discussions with Philip and Nathaniel? Is it purely a symbolic reference to the resurrection? Some people have suggested that because here we're confronted with the first of Jesus' signs. The last and the greatest of them will be the resurrection. And here we're starting on that road that leads there to the empty tomb. And all of these signs indications of who it is that we're dealing with. Well, that's a possibility, but perhaps it's a remote possibility that this third day is meant to call your mind to the third day, which is the first Easter. More than likely, though, this is the third day after Philip and Nathaniel's call. This particular thing happened. Now, the occasion for it was a wedding Perhaps it's worthwhile knowing that weddings were observed with quite a flourish 
in those times. Perhaps the reason, if you understand it from the viewpoint of sociology, the reason was understandable. People led a very drab life in those times. You might think of the Sabbath. Well, they had a Sabbath every week, and that's true enough, but the Sabbath was not so much recreational. It was the time when people recouped their physical strength. That was the force and intent of the Sabbath. But for real, you know, good times, they were few and far between. So when a wedding took place in a village, it was, so to speak, celebrated with a vengeance for seven days. Might be worth looking at a few places in the Old Testament that indicate just that, the seven-day celebration. First of all, in Judges 14.12, there's an example of that, a reference to it. It's Samson's wedding, and he's talking to his cronies who've come for the celebration. Let me pound you a riddle. If you can solve it for me in the seven days of the feast and find it out, I will give you 30 linen robes and 30 festal garments and so on. And again, in the book of Tobit, this is noted in passing. Tobit 11.19 And there was rejoicing among all his brothers in Nineveh. And Achikar and Nashbas his nephew came. And Tobias's marriage feast was held for seven days with great gladness. So there it is then, quite an extended celebration intended to take the edge off the drabness of life. And that then is the occasion that we are considering. Now, we're told that the mother of Jesus was there, which makes it seem, at least it may be an indication that Mary and Jesus were related to the person being married, specifically the groom. From around the 3rd or 4th century onward, a tradition developed, but it was just that. There's no way of knowing whether you could be traced all the way back. The tradition was that the person being married, the groom, would have been a nephew of Mary, namely a man by the name of John, son of Zebedee and Salome. But as I say, that dates from the third century, not from the very start, and there may not be any substance to it. What interests us is Mary referred to as the mother of Jesus. In the Arab world to this day, that's a typical, frequent way of referring to a woman, mother of so-and-so, a son particularly. It's kind of honorific. It's flattering to a woman to be able to say of her that, you know, she mothered a son. We don't want to get too deeply into the sociology of it, but part of the explanation of that is a son was, let's say, easier and better to have in the family than a daughter for one reason, because in case of war, that son could do this family's share of defending the nation. He could bear arms. Well, no thought ever of a woman going to war. And furthermore, a son could bring in an income at an early age. It's all very materialistic, but that may be in the background of this thinking. It's good to have a son in the family, and it's a point of honor to be referred to as a woman who has given birth to a son. Now, it's noted that Jesus comes with his disciples. Here's another indication that it very likely was a relative of Jesus who was being married so that Jesus could feel free to bring along his followers as well as himself. If it were just an acquaintance, perhaps Jesus would have come alone. But anyhow, that's worth noting. 
it is very much worth noting that here these persons that accompany Jesus to the wedding are referred to as his disciples. The word is used. Prior to this time, these would have been people at most, you know, friends that have clustered around Jesus, but now they've entered that category of being the disciples of Jesus. Very briefly, what that would imply is they're there to learn from Jesus, the Master, and also to live as he lives, to live his life. That, you know, in a nutshell, would be the concept of disciple. Interesting, too, that some of these disciples of Jesus had previously been disciples of John the Baptist. Andrew, for instance, and that unnamed disciple that come over to Jesus would certainly be in that category. But we'd have to conclude that they have set aside the abstemious ways that John the Baptist had. You know, John the Baptist led a very, very Spartan existence. He wasn't foregoing to wedding celebrations and that sort of thing. But Jesus lived more normally, so to speak, more in the usual way that people in this time lived. And now these disciples of John the Baptist have put aside their rigid mode of life and taken on the way of life that Jesus followed. All right, next we come to the remark made by Mary. Jesus' mother told him they have no wine. Some people wonder whether Mary was requesting a miracle here or not. Some people take a dim view of that understanding of the matter, and there are reasons for it of these, that there's no record of Jesus having performed a miracle before this, so what would put this into Mary's mind to ask him to do something as extraordinary as that? Secondly, they say, Mary had your typical Old Testament upbringing, and in the Old Testament, miracles were performed generally for Israel, for the whole group, for many, not for individuals, so that someone you know, brought up in the Old Testament mode wouldn't think in terms of a miracle being performed in aid of a single individual. So for those reasons, they doubt that Mary was asking for a miracle. But I'd like to point out that maybe it was just that, that Mary asked for a miracle. I'd say that for a few reasons. One would be that to say that there was no miracle prior to this one, we really have no warrant for saying that. There's none reported here, reported here in John's Gospel. But John does not introduce this account by saying this is the first ever of Jesus' miracles. No number one, and number two, that matter of Mary's Old Testament upbringing, does that preclude her belief that God and Jesus would not perform miracles for individuals? You know, it's rather a generalization, too broad, I think, to make, to say that in the Old Testament there's no instance of a miracle performed for an individual, because after all there is the instance of the widow that Elijah meets, who she and her son are facing death from starvation, and a miracle is performed in her behalf through Elijah's intercession. And another instance comes to mind, and that's Naaman the Syrian. Here is Naaman, a general in the Syrian army, comes down with leprosy, and is told by one of the maids at work in his household, there's a prophet down in Israel whose intercession before God is very powerful, and maybe he should go down and ask that man's 
prayer. And um, Naaman does just that and gets his cure. Naaman, a Syrian, not even a Jew, and an individual is favored by a miracle. So I don't see that this is a great problem and to rule out the possibility that Mary was asking Jesus to perform a miracle. The other thing that I think bears on all of this is then what would Mary be asking? Was she just pointing to the obvious, you know, to say, you know, there are these lovely flowers here on this table. What's the point of, you know, belaboring the obvious? It does seem as if she was expecting Jesus to take some action. Now, the other thing, too, that's background to this is that the shortage of wine may very well have been due to the presence of Jesus with his disciples, that here now would be the difficulty. All the more when you consider that in those times it appears to have been the custom when invited to a feast of this kind to bring along one's own supplies because people were poor in those days and not every person was rich enough to entertain a whole big group of people, a whole village that might turn out for a wedding. So people came bringing their own food and drink supplies. There are indications of that that we have in the literature that has come down to us. But here comes Jesus with the disciples. They have lived in a very, very impoverished way. They would not have brought anything with them. But they're participating in the general celebration, and this may have brought about then the shortage of wine, so that Mary may be reminding Jesus something has to be done here because now they've run short of wine. Well, the next word that I would want to dwell on is Jesus' address of Mary as woman. Now, unfortunately, because of the character of English and our usage of the language, this is a problem. It's crude in English for us to make a direct address of a woman that way, to say woman. At the very least, it is dialectical. There may be more remote parts of the country where a man could speak to his wife, for instance, and address her in that way as woman, but normally we don't do that. So that our first impression on hearing this is as though this were a rebuke, a put-down of Mary. And that's what we have to disabuse ourselves of altogether. It is anything but that, but a very normal way of addressing a woman. And that would not raise eyebrows at all. The problem really is with English. There's a deficiency in the language that, you know, in wanting to speak to a woman that we're not familiar with, how do we start? If we say miss, that may not be on the mark because the person may be married. And so we can't do that. Lady doesn't do it. Technically, it implies royalty, but even apart from that, it's not our usage. How does one handle that situation? We don't have a word for it. But in any case, we have to be disabused of the thought that Jesus, in speaking to his mother as woman, is being anything but normal and polite in addressing Mary in this fashion. There are any number of other places in Scripture where this word is used as in direct address, and there's no thought at all of there being any kind of rudeness or roughness in using the word. Let's look at some of them. 
in Matthew 15:28. Here is the Canaanite woman who has asked Jesus for a favor for her daughter and has persisted in asking that. Jesus answered her, Woman, you have great faith. You shall have what you want. So you can just see from the context here that there's been no discussion, no roughness in this dialogue. It's a perfectly normal exchange between Jesus and this woman. And he says to a woman, you have great faith, no reason to put her down. Then in Luke 13, 12, another instance of this, Luke 13, 12, when Jesus saw her, he called to her. This is the woman in the synagogue who was bent over and had this ailment for 18 years. She was bent double and could not straighten herself up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. Now, there'd be no possible way that you could read any sort of sternness in Jesus at this moment, any effort to correct this woman. It just ruled out completely. It's out of his benevolence that she doesn't even ask him for a favor, and he grants her this cure. So much for that, we have to just relate to this expression differently than we normally would. There's also this to be pointed out about the use of the word woman here. In this gospel, a certain meaning is put upon Mary as the woman who is on hand at the important moments of salvation history. This certainly is one of them, the very top of Jesus' public life. But remember at the cross, that, by the way, is the best example of all, I think, to show that the use of the word woman in this case is completely without any kind of bad, strong feeling. On Calvary, this gospel reports that Mary was present and Jesus says at one point to the disciple whom he loved, Son, behold your mother. And he says to Mary, Woman, behold your son. Well, I started to say that there's a special impact to the use of that word woman in this gospel. And in the background of that use is the reference back in Genesis. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your posterity and hers, they shall attack you in the head, you shall attack them in the heel. Okay, so this has to do with the fall of man and the salvation of man. In this gospel, the author takes great pains to show us Mary present at these critical moments that contribute to, that work toward the salvation of mankind. And it's all, you know, a takeoff on that reference to woman back there in Genesis. Woman, what is this to you and to me? Once again, unfortunately, this is a roughness as it comes out in English, but that is not present in all likelihood in the original at all. It just is a simple expression of disengagement. What Jesus is saying is, this is not my province. It's much as if someone should come into this room to say that there is a leak in the faucet down the corridor. And all I would say, well, we'll have to get maintenance. Besides, I have no authority around here to make any kind of rearrangements. This is simply not my involvement. 
That's all. A simple disengagement without any overtones of criticism or annoyance even. It's just stating the fact. This is not my realm of activity. I have nothing to do about this, and I shouldn't even. That's somebody else's task, and I shouldn't interfere. That's really the force and the spirit behind those words. What is that to you and to me? Mary's response to that is, do whatever he tells you. There's clearly persistence in that. Mary does not just give up when Jesus replies to her as he does, that this is not my province. But she just says to the attendants, do whatever he tells you. It's interesting to know that this kind of perseverance, let's use the kinder, softer word, this kind of perseverance in the face of uh, what appears to be Jesus' refusal is constant throughout the Gospels. Time and again, people come to Jesus for a favor and they stay with their request. They're not easily put off. And invariably, they are rewarded for their perseverance. We should look at a few examples of that. Matthew fifteen twenty-one. And Jesus left that place and retired to the neighborhood of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman of that district came out and screamed, Son of David, take pity on me, sir. My daughter is dreadfully possessed by a demon. But he would not answer her a word. Jesus, not responding. And his disciples came up and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps screaming after us. But he answered, I am sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she came and fell down before him and said, Help me, sir. He answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Oh, yes, sir. For even dogs eat the scraps that fall from the master's table. Now, this woman is nothing if not persistent. Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. You shall have what you want. You see, in fact, here we're tipped off by the meaning of this persistence that you see in these instances. It is an expression of faith. This woman deeply, firmly believes that Jesus can accomplish this miracle, which is what she's asking for. And that's what is clear from her stick to And so it is elsewhere where people keep after Jesus to get what they're requesting. Let's look also at John four forty-seven. There was at Capernaum one of the king's officials whose son was sick. When he heard that Jesus had come back from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and begged him to come down and cure his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and marvels, you will never believe. Jesus is putting him off. The official said to him, Come down, sir, before my child is dead. You see, the fellow keeps after it. He doesn't wilt when Jesus seems not to hear or when Jesus seems uninterested in doing anything. They stay with it. And what is the upshot? Jesus said to him, You can go home. Your son is going to live. So that's the way we should read Mary's persistence here. It's an expression, really an indication of her deep faith 
in the ability of Jesus to correct this situation. Now the next thing we go to consider is these containers that are mentioned here, six stone water jars. Well, some people have a heyday in seeing symbolism throughout this gospel. The gospel is very keen about symbols, but some people go overboard, and this is one instance where some do. So they mention six. Well, six, that's one less than seven. Seven is the number of perfection. And so this is seen as a comment, an all-too-subtle comment, on the inadequacy of the Jewish faith the Jewish religion, see, it's six, it doesn't come up to seven. And these stone water jars have to do with a religious practice of the Jews. And so therefore this is a remark, a hint, an insinuation about the imperfection of Jewish religion. That is a bit far-fetched, and maybe all that has to be said about six stone water jars is that the reason it mentions six is because indeed they were six, and that's that, without further implication. Some people even will fix on the stone, the fact that they were stone, not clay, and they hark back to a text in Exodus which speaks about stone water jars that have been polluted in some way and how they are to be purified. That too is rather a brash connection that very likely doesn't exist. They were stone water jars. They're called stone water jars because they were stone and not clay, and that's all there is to it. Now, we're given some indication of the volume of water and then subsequently the volume of wine that is involved here in this miracle, each containing 15 to 25 gallons. That, of course, is an approximation. The fact is, with embarrassment, we have to confess that we don't know exactly the measurements that prevailed in those times. There has not been a continuity when there was a conversion from the measurements that they used at that time to a subsequent measurement, finally getting around to our measurements of quarts and gallons. No one took the trouble to show the equivalence. So we're left pretty much to guess, but a pretty good guess would be that 15 to 25 gallons, which is, by the way, a considerable amount of wine that gets produced as a result of this miracle. Now, there's a reference made to a head waiter here, and some people see more in that reference than really is present. These people point out that it was not customary among the Jews when they launched a celebration of this kind to have a head waiter, an MC. But normally what would happen would be the groom would simply engage a good friend of his to manage the whole celebration. Well, some people then go on to say, and the very fact that the word head waiter is used indicates that perhaps the man who wrote up this account was unfamiliar with the Jewish scene and is describing things as they would have happened in the Greek world. That is an exaggeration, that conclusion. More than likely, what you have here is a man who is at home in both worlds, the author of this gospel, and writing, as he knew, for people who would be, in many instances, Greek-speaking, 
he uses an expression that would be familiar to Greeks, the architriclinicus, the head waiter. Although, in fact, he would have known that normally it would have been a friend of the groom who would have run the affair. Apropos of that, about the author, might make by way of a passing comment, the author of this gospel seems to have been very well versed with the Jewish scene. Some time ago, a Jewish scholar in England decided to read the Gospels to see you know, how he and his own studies of Jewish situations at the time of the Gospels, how he might profit from what he learned from the Gospels. His comment was, after reading the four Gospels, John's Gospel is the most Jewish of them all. And that came as a great surprise to Christian scholars because they didn't have that impression. And thinking of the fact that Matthew has such a strongly Jewish coloration, for this man, who knows whereof he speaks, a Jew himself, to say this was very, very sobering to Christian scholarship. Now we're told that the head waiter comes up to the groom to say, you know, usually the choice wine is served first. You saved it for the end. How come? Well, you shouldn't understand that this was regular etiquette or routine at these festivals to serve the best wine first. It's just simply an instance of human shrewdness. The person figuring out, I imagine bartenders must do this often enough, knowing that this fellow is going to go in for a series of drinks. You start out with the best ingredients at first, but toward the end, the fellow will be so taken with drink that he won't be able to distinguish good from bad. And that's all that this reference means. It's a shrewd human practice, but not the typical etiquette of the times to do just that. Now we come to the real punch that this episode has. You know, it really is not just a stray account of a miracle that Jesus performed. It's really put down to show you, as I said at the outset, the actions of Jesus as identifying him. Up until this point, it's been his words that have served to characterize him, to pinpoint his identity. But now, it's his actions, and it's sort of an explosive moment. See, because it's put just this way. This, the first of the signs of his mission, Jesus showed at Cana in Galilee. By it, he showed his greatness, and his disciples believed in him. So this caps the whole process of the discipling that's been going on. We saw the beginning of discipleship, and now these people have gone to be with Jesus, and this is the crowning action. Having seen Jesus do this, that now puts all doubt, so to speak, out of mind. Jesus is the one that they're going to be with. He is the Messiah, and there the matter is closed. Well, this is indeed, it's a manifestation of the glory of Jesus. There's going to be subsequently a greater manifestation of his glory in John 12:23. We find this, Jesus answered, The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls on the ground and dies, it remains just one grain. But if it dies, it yields a great harvest. So that's going to be the great manifestation of the glory of Jesus. This is just along the road to just that. All right, let's pause for a while now to probe the very 
significant and substantial theology that is embedded in this account. What we're told at the conclusion of this account is what the miracles, the signs of Jesus achieve, they serve to identify Jesus. That's the point. You see, in each instance of a miracle, what was foreseen is you would pause to think, now here is someone doing this particular action. What is that action telling me about that person's identity? Remember, this is in line with what I said before about these people's approach to reality, that an individual was judged, was estimated, was identified by what he did. Well, these signs now are going to serve exactly in that way. If Jesus can do this, change water into wine. If Jesus can cure a person who is gravely ill, if Jesus could maneuver nature as he does in calming the storm at sea, what is this saying about the identity of this Jesus? That's what's very much at issue here. We're seeing Jesus in action, and what conclusion are we to draw? And it is namely just that. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, another thing to note here in this passage is what might be called the replacement theme. And by that we mean that you have something in place and then something comes in to substitute for it. And what comes in, brought on by Jesus himself, supersedes, exceeds, is more significant than what it is replacing. And always it is Jesus who is doing that. Now, here the clear-cut instance is replacing water with wine. Well, wine is ever so much more precious, so much more uh, appreciated, so much stronger, nourishing even than water. Here was a Jewish usage, water in those jars used for Jewish religious ritual purposes, and that is being replaced by wine. Wine tops it by far. Well, we're going to see other instances of this. Oh, this gospel is shot through with those ideas. Whereas at one point in time, God's people were nourished in the desert by manna, which sustained their bodies, kept up their physical health, now Jesus comes to bring not manna, but the Eucharist, his body that is infinitely more valuable and necessary and craved for than manna ever was. Manna just kept up one's physical forces, but the Eucharist nourishes our spirit. But any number of other instances, there's one point at which Jesus is spoken of as the light of the world. That again, a practice of illuminating the temple on the occasion of the celebration of the dedication of the temple very, very striking moment. It must have been an experience to see this illumination. But Jesus is not just the lighting up of one building. Jesus is the light of the world. So we keep seeing this in this gospel, the replacement, usually a Jewish religious practice with something that Jesus brings on and that supersedes in every way. Now, we'll want to talk about the wedding as a messianic fulfillment. Do you see the scripture and the people in the scriptures 
have to gear us to the great day of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah in glory. And it's going to be an absolutely overwhelming experience. And how to suggest that? How can you put across the idea that something really tremendous will be this day of the Lord? And the best way these people thought of suggesting that is the wedding theme. The wedding was a high point in any villager's life when there was a wedding, and that was a memorable thing, something really to look forward to. So therefore, think of the day of the Lord that way as one everlasting wedding. So with the result that frequently when our attention is pointed forward, to the great times that will come with the return of the Messiah. Always the image used, the reference made is the wedding, the wedding banquet, the wedding feast. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.